Hey, it's great to have you out tonight. Um, again, um, we have a lot of people that are out. Some are traveling, we know, but um, maybe it's the weather, I don't know. But thank you for coming uh, to worship Jesus Christ with us tonight. I want to start with a rather lengthy quote, so I want you to stay with me. It's from one of your favorite uh, apologists, I'm sure, C.S. Lewis. It's from that famous book, Mere Christianity. It's a book that we have on the table here. Um, so I want you to listen. It's a rather lengthy quote, so I'm going to read it to you. Lewis writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing people often say about Jesus Christ. Namely, that He was a great moral teacher, but He was not God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He, was, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So, who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Lewis has given us three options. Three options. These are the only three legitimate options. He can't be a great moral teacher. Why? He claimed to be God. He claimed to be God. So is he a madman? Is he a demon? Or is he God? If he's a madman, he's easily ignored. Human history is littered with delusional men. If he's a demon, he's to be rejected and denounced. The sooner forgotten, the better. But if He is God, He matters more than anything else possibly ever could. Amen? If He is God, He matters more than anyone or anything else. And if He was and is God, His coming has changed everything. It changes everything. It's what I said to you last week. In biblical Christianity, there's, there's always... A therefore. And if Jesus Christ was God, there's an inescapable therefore. There's an unavoidable therefore. If He was God, and He did what the things that He did, and He said the things that He said, there is an inescapable therefore for you and I. Therefore is a word that appears, I looked it up, 927 times in Scripture. If you fold in the legitimate synonyms such as accordingly or consequently or hence or so or thus, there are almost 6,000 occurrences. God, when God reveals Himself, there's always a therefore for you. There's always implication for the human race. God's revelation of Himself is full of inescapable implications. God is not a professor. He's not simply lecturing to us. He's not simply indulging in, in uh, academic conjecture. When God speaks, He speaks for reason. He speaks with intent. He speaks with purpose. Therefore, there's always a therefore. Right? Always a therefore. When God 
speaks. Listen to Isaiah 55, 8-11. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout, and uh, furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God speaks, therefore, galaxies stand forth. God speaks, therefore, darkness gives way to light. God speaks, therefore, animals, birds, insects, and men are called into being who did not exist. God speaks, therefore storms cease. God speaks, therefore the blind see, the deaf hear, the lepers are healed and made clean, and dead men come out of tombs. God speaks, therefore. Therefore, beloved, you can't sit in church and listen to the Word of God and not understand there are huge implications for you personally. Huge implications for you personally. God is speaking to us. He means for you to do what He says. He means for you to obey. He means for us to understand the implications. There are two, as I told you, the Bible's full of the word therefore. There are two, my two favorite therefores in all of Scripture. I'm going to share them with you, then I'll get to the text. I just want to make my point. This will buttress my point. One of them is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Now, Paul has written uh, the 11 chapters of the most beautiful theology in, in all the Bible about the awesome nature of God and how He has saved His people. And at the end of chapter 11, Paul breaks out in doxology. Let me just share that verse with you. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. And right there, after he finished there at the end of Romans 11, guess what it says in chapter 12, verse 1? Guess what it says? Someone tell me. Therefore, therefore, God is awesome. God has saved you in the most remarkable way. Therefore, you know what it says if you know your Bibles. Therefore, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's always a therefore, beloved. Always a therefore. In this breathtaking salvation, God gives Himself to His people. Therefore, God calls His people to give themselves to Him. This is biblical Christianity. God gives Himself away to His people. And He calls His people to give themselves away to Him. This is biblical Christianity. My other favorite, therefore, is in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Now you know I always talk about Hebrews 11. It's my favorite chapter, maybe my favorite chapter in the Bible. God defines faith and He illustrates faith. He says, man, real faith is men and women turning the world upside down. You know the chapter. Moses, Abraham, Sarah, Rahab, David, Gideon, all those guys, they did all these amazing things by faith. And you get down to chapter 12, verse 1, what does it say? Someone tell me, can you guess? Therefore, God says, all these guys did it. 
Therefore, you go do it. That's basically what he says. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. They did it. Now I want you to do it. There's always a therefore, beloved. There's always, anytime God speaks, there are huge implications for you and me. There are huge implications for the cosmos when He speaks. Certainly, certainly you and me. If Jesus of Nazareth is God in the flesh, and if the Bible is true, the therefore is unescapable. It's inescapable. It's unavoidable. And oh, guess what? I said all that to say this. There's one in our text tonight. There's one in our text tonight. We know we've been looking at the first 12 verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to say it to you again. Peter's been writing to a suffering people. And I'm going to remind you at least one more time. I'm probably not going to let you forget this. The prologue of 1 Peter. Because Peter says your God is God. Your God has chosen you. Your God has redeemed you. Your God has indwelt you. Your God has caused you to be born again. Your your God has prepared an imperishable inheritance for you. Your God protects you by His power. His hands are on you in the trial. On your hardest day, God is doing a good thing in your life. This is what Peter has been saying to us. He says all this awesome stuff about who God is and what God's done in our life and how God has saved us and what God has prepared for us. And then he says, therefore. (laughs) Therefore. This is the first command in the book. Therefore. You heard it read. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Right? Gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God is not advising, consulting, or counseling here. God is commanding. God says, because I'm God and I've saved you, therefore, live like I'm God and live like I saved you. It's always this way. I've been preaching for, well, as a vocation now, for about 10 years, but I've been preaching for a long time, about 15 to 20 years as a lay person. And I see this all the time. It's just always in Scripture. The implication, the implication, the therefore. It's all the way through the Bible, beloved. And if you, if you know your Bibles, you understand this. God has been reminding us in the first 12 verses of 1 Peter that we were redeemed in the most remarkable way, and now He commands us to live in a remarkable way. In a way that, that honors Him. So He says, gird up your minds, verse 13, gird your minds for Action. What is Peter saying to us here? Well, of course we know what it means for the first century Christian. They wore long flowing robes. So if they wanted to do labor, or if they needed to run, or if they needed to fight, we know what they needed to do, right? They had to take those robes and and gird them up into their belt. That's what they had to do. They They had to get the robes out of 
the way so they would cinch them up or bind them or restrain them in their belt. Then they could labor, they could work, they could run, they could fight. I, I trust that the metaphors have not been lost on you. So they could labor. <laughs> they, they girded up their robes so they could labor. Gird up your minds! This is what God said. Gird up your minds so you can do My work. Gird up your mind and labor. We're to be laborers worthy of our wages. 1 Timothy 5.18 we're to run the race to win. He says, gird up your mind so you can run to win. I love that. Gird up your mind so you can run to win. First Corinthians 9.24 Lastly, you know, gird up your mind and fight the good fight of faith. 1 Timothy 6.12 Gird up your mind so you can fight the good fight of faith. Peter says, if you're serious about walking with Jesus Christ, you must gird up your mind. I looked up some synonyms for gird. I know it's somewhat of an unusual word for uh, in the modern English. So I looked up some synonyms. It means this. You are to surround your mind, encircle your mind, encompass your mind, hem up your mind, brace your mind, fortify your mind, prepare your mind, ready your mind, steal your mind, and strengthen your mind for action. What does that look like? Well, it looks like this. <laughs> Partly, it looks like Thursday night at Young Adult Bible Study guy sitting in a circle talking about the Word of God. Of course, it looks like you in your quiet time studying the Word. And you know this doesn't happen by osmosis. It's, you can't just sit in your chair and stare at your navel and receive the revelation of God. You have to be proactive, beloved. You need to pursue God in His Word. It looks like it looks like Psalm 119. I want you, I'm just going to read a, a few verses from Psalm 119. You know that Psalm 119 is the longest chapter um, in the Bible. And it, it's, yeah, it's too long for me to read, but I'm going to just read some selected verses for you. This is what it looks like to gird up your mind. Okay? Listen to this. With all my heart I have sought thee. Are you guilty? Are you girding up your mind? He says, with all... My heart I have sought Thee. He says, Do not let me wander from Thy commandments. Thy Word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against Thee. How sweet are Thy words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From Thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. I shall delight in Thy statutes. I shall not forget Thy Word. I shall seek Thy precepts. I shall meditate upon Thy statutes. That's what God's talking about. Is that you? Is that you? Are you in God's Word? Are you being changed by God's Word? Are you being amazed by God's Word? Beloved, I get paid to be in God's Word. It's the best job in the world. And Karen and I talk about it all the time. I, I'll go in there. I'll get up from my desk and I'll go in there where she works. And I say, Man, I, can't, I can't believe I get paid to do this. You know, I get to think deep. I get to get into the Word of God deep and think deeply about it. And I'm always amazed. Are you amazed? It's what we talked about last week. Full of wonder. I'll struck wonder. Amen? If we're really understanding the Bible, if we're really understanding who He is and what He's, what he's done, we're filled with wonder. Awestruck wonder. As the Revelation song says. So what are you filling your mind with? Let me just ask you. What are you filling your mind with? Beloved? Something in the world or 
Nothing? Or, or are you girding your mind that you might be a warrior? That you might be a warrior. That you might walk as a son and daughter of the King. God says, I expect My people to gird up their minds to encircle, encompass, fortify, and strengthen their minds with My Word. It's what real Christians do. It's how Christians, real Christians, navigate real life with a God-centered world view. As we meditate on the beauty and the splendor and the greatness of our God, He enlarges our heart. That's another verse in Psalm 119. He enlarges our heart. Have you ever felt your heart enlarged? If your heart has not been enlarged, you've not met Him yet. He will enlarge your heart. He will enlarge your heart. And you can run in the way of God. I love that verse. We understand that He does this. And then, we, re- then we, can, we can know as we look at God, we understand what the Scripture exhorts us to be, which is Nike. Someone tell me what Nike means. It's, a, it's, the, it's, the, uh, it's the Greek. Nike. What does it mean? It means to get the victory. It means to overcome. You guys, you know, in, in the modern vernacular, it's known as Nike, right? That's why they, that's why they took that logo. That's why they took that name. It means to overcome, to get the victory. And the Christian, we are supreme overcomers. We get the victory in every trial. Why? Because our God is God and our God is good and His promises are trustworthy. And I'm just going to read to you, I'm just going to, parenthetically, I just have to insert this. Of course, it is one of His promises and I love what Piper says. All of God's promises are found in Romans 8.28. So I'm going to read a quote to you about Romans 8.28 from John Piper. He says, once you enter into Romans 8.28, everything changes. Your life is more solid and stable than Mount Everest. You simply cannot be blown over anymore. The confidence that a sovereign God governs uh, for your good, all the pain and all the pleasure that you will ever experience is an incomparable refuge, security, hope, and power in your life. When God's people really live by the grace of Romans 8.28 from measles to the mortuary, They are the freest, strongest, and most generous people in the world. Amen? You're supposed to be free out there. You're supposed to be strong out there. You're supposed to be the light out there. As I've told you so many times, that's why God has left us on the planet. Also, verse 13, it says, we are to be sober in spirit. Some translations say sober in spirit. Mind. What does it mean? It means to practice temperance and moderation and even abstinence regarding what you let into your mind. Garbage in what? It's true, isn't it? Garbage in, garbage out. It's the things you look at, watch, listen to, read, the websites you visit. Don't drink in things that numb your mind and heart toward God. Beloved. You have to be proactive to drink in the things and eat the things, being the Word of God, that draw you to Him. That enable you to see and understand who He is. Don't become mentally or spiritually intoxicated with the things of the world. Don't inebriate yourself with the lusts of the flesh. It can be 1,001 different things. Some of you know I like to refer to Pilgrim's Progress. You remember the list of things that were for sale at Vanity Fair. In Pilgrim's as Christian was on his way to on his pilgrimage to the celestial city. Do you remember the things that the, the vendors were selling at Vanity Fair? Let me just read them for you, real quick. 
These are the things that the, the vendors at Vanity Fair use to try to distract the Christian on his pilgrimage to the celestial city. Listen. Fine houses, lands, stocks, bonds, fashion, jewelry, cosmetics, beauty, gold, silver, fame, fortune, reputation, virtue, honor, popularity, positions, titles, degrees, games, plays, contests, chants, votes, elections, schemes, comics, pleasures, lusts, illicit sex, prostitutes, husbands, wives, children, uh, lives, bodies, blood. And the last one was fashionable religion. Well, there's a lot of that going on. <laughs> There's a lot of fashionable religion going on these days. What I want to say to you is many, if not most of these things are not wrong in and of themselves. They're only wrong if you love and pursue them more than you love and pursue your Creator. Then they become wrong. Then they become sin. Then they become wickedness in your life. I like how John MacArthur asked his congregation one night, he says, if you knew Jesus Christ was returning tomorrow, would that be an intrusion in your life? <laughs> I thought that was a, a pretty interesting question. Would that upset your plans? Would that mess up your day? Beloved, if, that, if that's true, you've got something in the wrong place. You've got something in your heart that's in a higher place than the Lord Jesus. It's In Young Adult Bible Study Thursday night, we looked at that Famous passage, Philippians 1, uh, 21 through 23, you know where Paul says to live as Christ, to die as gain, which to me is the most succinct way to define Christianity. To live as Christ, to die as gain. This is biblical Christianity in one verse. To live as Christ, to die as gain. And Paul says, I'm hard pressed, for to be with Jesus would be very much better. You feel this tension, right? You feel the tension? Don't you feel the tension? He says, Man, I'm hard pressed. I'd love to be there. Maturing Christians feel this tension. We would love to be there. It'd be far, very much better to be there. But what is Paul's conclusion? Ultimately, his conclusion is, it's more necessary for me to be here. Is that, how, is that your worldview? It's necessary. Why would it be necessary for you to be here? Because you're doing the Lord's work, right? You're doing the Lord's work. You've girded up your minds. You're sober in your spirit. And you're doing what God has left you here to do. You know, some say to me, well, Jim, I, I'm not ready to die and be with Christ. I, I want to graduate first. I want to I get the big job first. I want to take this trip first. I want to fall in love first. I want to get married first. I want to have kids first. I want to retire first. I've been guilty of this, and I don't say it anymore. People used to ask me about it, and I, you know, about dying, and I'd say, well, I just want to preach one more time. I don't say that anymore. It sounds spiritual enough, but I don't say it anymore because it betrays a lack of understanding of who He is and how awesome He is and what it would mean to be in His presence. It betrays the fact that I think something is more satisfying than Christ. Beloved, we need to learn these biblical truths. To live is Christ. To die is Gain. We should feel that tension. That's what it looks like to have your mind girded for action. You get that. You get Philippians 1.21. And you don't just hold it at arm's length. You're not afraid of it. You love it and you are progressively embracing it. This is what a mind girded for action looks like. This is what a sober-spirited man 
looks like. This is how he lives. Verse 13, look what it says. And this is the main verb in, in, the, in the verse. Hope. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, this is the main verb to fix your hope continually, or pardon me, completely. Peter's writing, as I want to remind you, he's writing to suffering Christians. And this is the first imperative. Hopefully. And if you go back and you read the first 12 verses of uh, 1 Peter, you'll understand why he, he can certainly exhort the reader or hearer to hopefully. Our God has chosen us. Our God has indwelt us. Our God has redeemed us. Our God has caused us to be born again. Our God, you know the whole list. I won't go down the list again. So, hope fully. God says, hope fully in me. Hope fully in my promises. Hope fully in the grace I've purchased for you. The grace I've lavished upon you. Hope fully in that. I know it's hard. Hope in it. Beloved, we're to be a people full of hope. On the worst day, we, we still have hope because our God's still God. <laughs> right? And our, our God's promise is still good. We can't see it just now, but we know it. We hope. And that's the point of this, these few verses here, basically. This is one of the obvious fallacies of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It takes the bulk of God's promises and attempts to pull them into time when explicitly... Biblically, the bulk of God's promises are for the next life. We understand that if we are biblically literate. Peter says, Hope fully in the grace coming to you at the revelation of Jesus. Again, as we've been saying, our worldview is dominated by our heaven view. It's why we're not blown over, blown away in the midst of temporal trials. We've set our minds on the things above. Let me just ask you, is that true of you? Have you set your mind on the things above? Are you looking at the things above? The things that are not seen? MacArthur, again, I have to quote him again. He says a great thing here about verse 13. He says, Faith believes what God has said and hope believes what God has promised. Faith accepts and hope expects. Don't you love that? Faith accepts and hope expects. I love that. I think it's perfect. That's a great, a great thing to, to think about as we look at these texts. And then he says something I'd never heard before. I never thought about it before. He said, we owe God hope. <laughs> we owe Him everything. Everything we are, everything we have is from God. But in the very least, we owe Him hope, right? I love that. I thought that was, I thought that was interesting. When it gets hard, our unbelieving friends, family, and colleagues are supposed to see our unwavering hope in our utterly faithful God. As I've been saying to you in the last few weeks, it is our best evangelism. And since our God is God and He is awesome, we are not to be lukewarm hopers. <laughs> We're supposed to be glad, reckless, joy hopers. We're to hope in God. Our, our hope is to be God-sized. We're to have a God-sized hope. Nothing can take our joy down. Our joy is in God. And our God is God. And our God's Word is good and His promises are true. We don't give our joy up to anybody. Right? We don't. 
Beloved, this is the point of the first chapter of First Peter. Our hope is indestructible because our God is invincible. Verse 14, He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. Obedience is always the hallmark of true conversion. You guys know this, right? If you know your Bible, obedience is the hallmark of true conversion. It's not church going. Church going is good. You should go to church. I got saved in church. I know a lot of people that got saved in church. They thought they were Christians. Then they got saved. So, it's good to go to church. But that's not the issue here. Obedience is always the hallmark of true conversion. I know that millions in the world today call themselves Christians, but they never concern themselves with actually obeying Christ. If you've been around the church, any church very long, most likely you have seen this. Jesus is merely an icon, a mascot, or a spiritual lucky charm. Satan has deceived millions of people into believing if they simply go to church and do religious things that they're a Christian. Actually, if we read our Bibles, we understand from Matthew chapter 7 that, as I've said to you many times in the last year or so, that Jesus says many will be deceived about this. It won't just be some. He says many will be deceived. And they will show Jesus their religious resumes, their pseudo-Christian resumes. And they're very impressive. Just go read Matthew chapter 7. And what will Jesus say? Does anybody remember? What will Jesus say to them? I don't know who you are. I don't know who you are. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So we understand that scripturally. And God is quite explicit about this over in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3 and 5, 3, 3 through 5. Listen to what John writes. By this we know that we have come to know him. By what? He continues. If we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, he is. Does anybody remember? John is not a he's not he's not an easy preacher, right? <laughs> he's just bam. He's a liar, John says. He's a liar. But whoever keeps his word in him the love of God has been truly perfected by this we know that we are in him. And if we know our Bibles, we understand that our obedience is not driven by ought and should Yes, we ought. Yes, we should. But the real Christian's obedience, it flows out of knowing and loving God. We, you know, the, the genuine Christian, is not a, he's not a rule keeper. He's a God lover. Amen? We're not here to check our boxes. We're not Pharisees. We don't just check our boxes and do our, our 600 laws every day. That's not who we are as Christians. We are in love with this great God. And it spills out. It spills out into into our lives. It's what we talked about last week. It's the wonder, the awestruck wonder. And yeah, as we've talked about these first 12 verses, this fuels our obedience as we contemplate these things, these weighty and deep and beautiful and mysterious and glorious things. How God has loved us and how God has saved us. Yes, that fuels our obedience. It fuels our hope and it fuels our obedience. The world can't have my joy. The world can't have my affections. It can't have my allegiance. That belongs to God. Because He is awesome and He saved me in the most remarkable way. And it moves my soul. And beloved, if your soul is moved, 
Your hands will move. And your feet will move. And your tongue will move. He'll inhabit your life and use you for His glory. While none of us obey perfectly, we are fully engaged in the spiritual war that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7. Paul says, man, I don't know. He says, I do the very thing I hate. He says, man, there's a war in me. If you're a Christian, you get this, right? We understand this war. This war of sanctification. We understand this. We understand this fight with sin. We understand it's a lifelong struggle. But we, can, we continue to expectantly cooperate with the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, trusting that He will complete the good work He's begun in us. It's Philippians 1.6. It's what God says. He says one of his, this is one of His most comforting promises. He is at work in us, bringing us into conformity with His Son. And I, I looked up four different English translations of this verb, this Greek verb here. And it says, God will finish, God will complete, God will perfect, and God will perform the work He's begun in us. Beloved, our holiness is its not about our holiness. It's about His holiness that He's working in us through the work of the sanctifying Holy Spirit. It's how you and I can come to 1 Peter 15-16 and not be in utter despair. I can remember as a young Christian reading this, these verses and realizing God is commanding me to be holy and I am not holy. Now we understand it's theologically correct and proper to say that we are holy positionally. Yes? We are holy in Christ. We are in Christ. Positionally we are holy. But I know I'm not holy. This gave me some trouble. And if we're honest, as the Bible says, any man who says he has no sin, he's what? What does John say? That John says it again in 1 John. If we say we have no sin, what? You're a liar. Yeah, John could never make it today. Nobody would come listen to him. Right? He's just too hard. He's just too strong. So, anyway. God does the work. God is at work in us. And I tell you, I, I struggled with this. But again, I, I, I'm sorry, I've quoted him a couple times already, but MacArthur says it perfectly. He says, our holiness is not like God's holiness to, in the extent. Our holiness is like God's holiness in kind. We're certainly not holy as God is holy. We're not morally perfect. And we won't be morally perfect until we see Him and then we'll be like Him, we'll be transformed. We understand that. But we, we are like Him in the sense that, that we are moving toward holiness as the Holy Spirit works in us. We are moving toward holiness. Sanctification is happening. We are cooperating with the sanctification of the Holy Spirit in us. There's another aspect to this word of holy that, that really helps us here. It's not simply being morally perfect, which we know we're not, but we are moving on in holiness with the Holy Spirit. There's another aspect. It's what I told you last week. Do you remember when I told you the angels stand before God and say, holy, holy, holy? Remember what I told you they were saying? One of the things they were saying, they're saying many things, much more than we have time to, to even begin to contemplate. But, but does anybody remember what I said last week? What are they saying to God? Is they, one of the things they're saying to God when they cry, holy, holy, holy. They're saying, nobody's like you! 
You are unique. You are the uncreated. You are the unbegun. Nobody's like you. He's unique. And in that sense, we are holy. We are unique in the world. We are unique in the world. We are distinct from the world. We are different than the world. Of course, we strive to keep the moral and ethical law of God. Sometimes we, we fail in practice. Most often we fail in our hearts. But, but our holiness does not resemble God in perfect righteousness. But we are set apart and unique in this world. I looked it up in the, the, the King James, the Old King James. Six times in the Old King James, God calls His people what? Does anybody remember? A peculiar people in that sense. In that sense, we are like God. We are peculiar people. I looked it up. We are unusual. We are distinct. We are particular. We are exclusive. We are unique. I, I sometimes have people come to me and say, you know, people who have just been recently converted, and they say, listen, man, my family thinks I'm losing it. Man, my family thinks I'm weird. My wife thinks I'm crazy. My husband thinks I've lost my mind. I say, praise God. They think I'm weird. You are weird! If you belong to God, you're weird as far as the world is concerned. You don't fit in here. It's the alien, stranger, exile thing. You don't fit here. You don't think like the world anymore. You've been set apart. This is what one thing that the Lord is saying to us here. He says, be obedient children. Don't be conformed to the former lust. Yes, we still struggle with these things, but they're former. That's not who I am anymore. Yes, I still struggle with them, but I'm moving in holiness toward God, which were yours in your ignorance. We're no longer shackled in ignorance. We know the truth, and the truth what? Someone tell me. John chapter 8 sets us free. It makes us free. Beloved, we're free to be who God has called us to be. We are holy in that in Christ we are set apart, unique, distinct, and peculiar in the world. We are the sons and daughters of God. We are His. We belong to Him. So in closing, in the first 12 verses of 1 Peter, God has told us, I've got to do it again. I've got to do it at least one more time. And I bet I'll do it again next week. Because 1 Peter is so unbelievable. The first 12 verses. But Peter says, through 1 Peter, God has said, I've chosen you. He says it. I've chosen you. Then He says, I've redeemed you with My blood. Then He says, I've indwelt you with My Spirit. Then He says, I've caused you to be born again. And then He says, I've prepared an inheritance for you that is imperishable. And then He says, I'm holding you and protecting you by My omnipotent power. And he says, any trial you go through, I'm holding you and I will work it for good. God has said these things to us. I'm loving you and holding you. God says, because all of this is true, therefore, because all of that is true, therefore, let all this be true of you. Gird up your minds. Gird up your minds. 
for action. Keep sober in spirit. Hope fully in every one of my promises. Live as my obedient children. Forsake your former lusts and be holy for I am holy. Beloved, if the Bible is true, it changes everything. If Jesus Christ was and is God, the therefore is inescapable. Our God has loved us and come for us, therefore, everything changes. Everything changes. And my challenge to you always is to go out into the world and live it huge. To live it huge. Don't you dare call yourself a Christian and live it that big. Don't you dare do it. That's blasphemy. To say that you belong to Christ and then you live your Christianity in some careful, cautious, lukewarm half-scared way. Beloved, that's not who God has called us to be. That's not who God has called us to be. So I give you license as your pastor. I exhort you, based on the authority of the Word of God, you go out in the world and you live it huge for the glory of Jesus, for the conversion of the lost. Do it, beloved. Do it. I guess you've noticed that we're going to partake of the table tonight. We're going to have communion. What we do here is we have open communion. All who have uh, made a profession of faith in Christ and followed Him in believer's baptism, you are welcome to partake of the elements. As always, before we do this, I always caution everyone here to not come to the table in an unworthy manner. Paul cautions the Corinthians not to do this. So prepare your hearts. If you've got a sin in your heart and you're determined to hang on to it, don't come to the table. Don't come to the table in an unworthy manner. Don't come in some legalistic, ritualistic, religious manner. You come remembering how much He's done for us and how much you love Him and recommitting yourself to Him and all that He's taught us tonight. Okay? So sit there and repent of your sin. Forsake your sin. Uh, confess your sin, ask the Lord to forgive your sin, and then come up and partake of the elements. The way we do this, we'll play a song, and it'll last about three or four or five minutes. Um, during that song, again, do some business with God, whatever you need to do, to prepare your hearts to come to the table in a worthy manner. Uh, during the song, come up, take the cup, take the bread, go back to your seat, and after the song is finished, I'll stand and I'll read a text, and then we will partake of the elements. Okay? Alright, prepare your hearts to come to the table and celebrate what Jesus Christ has done.